Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 3. It's in your worship guides, but you can turn there if you have a Bible in front of you. Psalm 3, it's a psalm of lament. Uh, It's written by David as he fled from Jerusalem. His son Absalom had just revolted, uh, revolted against him and stormed the city, kicked out his dad, and all of Israel is turned against David right now. And so David is in the wilderness, um, and at first glance this might sound very hopeless, and indeed it was, but uh, throughout all of this, David continued to trust that the Lord would bring him ultimate salvation. So let's look at Psalm number three, and I'll read it for us. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you that you do bring us ultimate salvation, that you love us as a father loves his children. And we pray that you would open this text to us, that we would see what you want us to see, that we would hear about how David relies on you for salvation and how we also should rely on you for salvation. I pray that you would speak truth through me to the people of this church. And in your name, amen. Well, in the Disney film Mulan, perhaps the most memorable song is Reflection. We all know that song probably if we've watched it, and every little girl, and maybe some little boys too, who have watched the movie had to memorize the song and go home and sing it into their own mirror. They had to belt out their own angst and sing about how no one really understands them and who they are inside. In the film, Mulan had just come from a public mishap that had brought immense shame on her family, and in Chinese shame culture, uh, it was, as it was communicated in the movie, that was... Th- that was huge. So she comes home, she avoids her parents, she goes out to their garden and their family temple, and she belts out this lament about how her inner person doesn't match her outer person, and how this conflict within her hurts both herself and also hurts her family. And she just wonders if she's ever going to be good enough to meet her society's expectations. She wonders rather tragically if she is just doomed to live her entire life carrying this tension. Now, this song may seem like it's simply part of the film to move the plot along, and I'm sure that the the writers of Mulan, that's what it was to them. However, Disney, maybe if they don't realize it, they're, they're taking part in this long tradition that goes back to the Psalms. Historically, societies have provided a space for people to mourn, to express grief, and also to heal and work through that grief. This, called, this tradition is called lament. We find it in primeval funeral rites. We find it in contemporary opera. We see lament in ancient Egypt and in 18th century Scotland. And we also see it in modern Disney films. But today, we're reading a psalm of lament. There are quite a few psalms that 
are considered psalms of lament. They're basically the psalmist uh, expressing their grief to God and asking him for help in their pain. And today we are going to hear of a figure who, like Mulan, is in a hopeless situation and is crying out about not being able to overcome the obstacles in his life, who is helpless and broken. And this person is King David. Now, unlike Mulan, King David is not merely ranting. He's not calling on his ancestors to help him. No, he's bringing his grief and his hopelessness to God, the God of his ancestors, the God who ultimately can bring salvation. In this psalm, David emphasizes desperation, he emphasizes anguish, but this psalm is far from hopeless and despairing, for it provides us hope, ultimately. The passage shows us that because salvation belongs to the Lord, we can trust him to deliver us from all of our enemies. And in this psalm, it's going to be broken into three parts. David prays for salvation, and we'll see these three different things, that God answers us, that God sustains us, and that God ultimately saves us. So the first few verses uh, we'll look at, God answers us. In verse 1, right away you can tell that David is distressed, right? My enemies surround me, Lord. Now God already knows his plight, right? God already knew that Absalom was going to come in and kick him out of the city and take his throne. He already knew that he was going to rebel against David. Yet David comes in his distress and tells God of his distress. And he doesn't come to God and demand right away that God would just rescue him or destroy his enemies. Rather, he comes to God and he recounts his woes. He tells God how he feels, that he is surrounded by enemies, and that all of Israel has turned against him and is bad-mouthing him publicly, that Israel says that David is beyond the help of even God. And God hears David because in verse 4, it says that God answered him from his holy hill. And to answer someone implies that you've heard them first. But what does it mean that God has answered David? Was God actually speaking to David, saying, it's okay, David, I'll take care of you? Or was this the internal working of the Spirit bringing assurance and peace to David? We aren't sure. However, we can tell, however God accomplished this, David is assured that God will shield him, that God will bring him glory, though he has been humiliated in front of all of Israel, that though David is brought low, God is going to lift him up. And so God's promised deliverance that we see in verse 3 is his answer to David's prayer. Now remember, this is the same David coming before God, the same David that is guilty of adultery and murder, that has a hugely messed up family, and right now he's dealing with this rebellious son. This is the same David that called on God and poured out his heart and trusted that God was going to hear him and was going to answer him. And what's more amazing is not that David came before God, but that God did indeed answer him. Before Hannah and I were married, we had marriage counseling with her pastor, who also doubled as her father. And he showed us this video in one of our sessions And it starts with this couple on this couch. And the camera work, you can't quite see the entire couple. I think their backs are to you. And the woman is complaining about these pains in her head and just constant discomfort. And then the camera pans up and she turns and you see there's this nail sticking straight in her forehead. And the husband is listening and then he says, I think I know what's wrong, babe. You have a nail in your forehead. And his wife interrupts and says, it's not about the nail. You never listen to me. 
And so for the rest of the video, the husband listens to her as she complains about constant headaches and snagged sweaters. And <laughs> at the end of the, of, the, of the conversation, he says through gritted teeth, that sounds really hard. And his wife smiles at him. She was heard, right? And she leans in to kiss him and bumps the nail, and the argument starts all over again. My father-in-law said, Benjamin, sometimes Hannah is going to want you to just listen to her. She wa doesn't want you to immediately jump to fixing the problem. She wants to find comfort in someone she loves who is listening to her and who assures her that, yes, I am here, I love you, and I will listen as you tell me your problem. And in the first verse or two of this psalm, that's kind of where David is at. He's coming before God with this nail in his forehead, and he's not immediately asking God to fix everything. That'll, that'll come later. And God hears him, and he answers him with assurance that he does love David, that he will protect him, he will take care of him. And God hears us when we come to him. He wants us to call on him, to bring him the nails in our foreheads. And he's going to answer us, and he has answered you already. He's given us his word so that we can know his love for us. And he's, if, if you're a Christian, he's given you his spirit to dwell inside of you so that you can have assurance that you are his beloved child. I think too often we approach prayer with this guilty attitude that we are aware of the sin that we commit sometimes daily. Uh, we're aware of how we mess up. We're aware of how our life is falling apart. And we ignore the good news of the gospel, the gospel that says that God loves you, that God chose you, that God wants you. And instead, we wallow in our guilt, in our bad life situation. We approach prayer with the attitude of, God, I'm sorry that I, that I sin. I'm going to do better. Um, when my sin is under control, then I'll approach you as your child, and we can commune, we can have fellowship. But until then, I, I'm sorry, I'm just not worthy to approach you. I know that I do that all the time. But that's not how God operates. No, Christian, he longs to know you. He longs to have you approach him, and he longs to have you tell him your troubles. He longs to know how your enemies surround you, how your life might be falling apart, and even if sometimes it's because of your own sin. He wants to know how you struggle with sin, how no matter what you do, it just seems to come back and the thing is, Jesus has already taken away your sin and given you his righteousness. And so when you come before God, God sees you broken and sinful and struggling, and he sees only Christ and his righteousness. So approach God boldly in prayer. Tell him your struggles. Tell him your problems, your hurts. He will hear you, and he will answer you with peace that passes understanding, with assurance, with a clear conscience. And if you're not a Christian, I implore you to call on him today. He will listen to you. He will not turn you away. He offers Christ's righteousness for you to cover your sin. And no matter what you've done, no matter what people say about you, all you have to do is call on him, and he will bring you to him as his child. And he will call you pure and perfect. Well, we've seen how God hears his children and answers them how he answered David. Now we're going to look at the next few verses, verses 5 and 6, how God sustains us. So David kind of switches gears here. 
he's talking in the past tense. He's no longer directly speaking to God. He mentions that he slept, he laid down and slept, and he awoke again. How would we sleep in a situation like David's? His throne had just been taken. He'd just been kicked out of polite society. Everyone's bad-mouthing him publicly. His own son turned against him. And yet, he's gone to God. He's told him how he feels. And now, he has faith that God will sustain him. And he lies down and sleeps. John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 3, says that David slept, quote, as if he had been beyond the reach of all danger. He had doubtless been tossed amidst the merciless waves of anxiety, but however much he was disquieted, he reposed in God. Despite his circumstances, David trusts God to take care of him, and and he shows that through his life. He lies down and he sleeps, and he sleeps peacefully, and he credits it to the Lord. The Lord sustained me. No matter how many thousands of enemies are around him, And no matter what people say about him, he spoke to God and received the answer of God's care for him, and he is being shielded and lifted by the Lord of hosts. This is the same God that led Israel out of Egypt. Surely he will now care for David, his son. A few summers ago, Hannah and I went camping with some friends, and this was Hannah's first time camping. And camping is really fun, um, usually. Um, I feel like it's a law of the universe that when you go camping, it has to rain at some point, right? And it definitely rained that night, and it was, it was more than rain. It was this huge thunderstorm. I, I think it was bigger than any thunderstorm I've ever heard or, or witnessed. Um, this thing went on for hours, and it felt like we were at the epicenter. So, like, the thunder would just start on one side of the sky and just echo across the sky, and you could feel it. It felt like you were in this, I don't know, an echo chamber. Um, And as I was lying there, I just was realizing, like, we're in a tent, and there's, like, these humongous trees all around us in our campsite. I remember just lying there with my eyes closed, listening to the thunder crashing, and just bracing myself for one of those trees to fall on top of us. I I know I definitely was not feeling the same zen that David was. I, I wasn't lying down and sleeping safe in the knowledge that God would take care of me. No, I was pretty sure the next day rescue crews were going to be scraping me off the underside of a tree with a spatula. (laughs) Now, David, he shows that we can have complete confidence in God, even when there's thunderstorms, even when there are thousands of enemies around you. And And he shows us that we can have confidence in God to the point that we sleep soundly. This reminds me of the passage in Mark where Jesus is asleep on the boat. And remember, his disciples wake him up and he answers them with, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are we afraid? Have we still no faith? God answered us by giving us his word and his spirit, and yet we still lose sleep. We still distrust him. We still disbelieve that he will provide for us. Perhaps like David, you worry about a child who has rebelled, who has walked away from the faith. You keep running through your head all the things you might have done wrong or how you can fix your child now. Or maybe, like David, you struggle with your own sin. And no matter what you do, it continues to rear its ugly head and get the better of you. Or it continues to haunt you. And you consistently just keep worrying about what you can do to make it go away and how you can get God to love you again. 
Or perhaps, like David, you've lost your kingdom. Maybe you've been let go, you've been divorced, you've retired or graduated, and now that job or that degree or that marriage that has so defined your life, so defined you, is gone. And you have to figure out what you're going to do going forward. You have to figure out where you're going to go from here. You have to figure out what to tell people when they ask about it. You have to figure out who you are now. Well, Matthew 6 tells us not to worry about what we eat or wear. You know, if God provides for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, surely he'll care for his own children. Verse 34 says famously, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, easy to say, not as easy to put into practice. But Christian, we can have complete confidence in God that he will provide. He already knows your situation. He already knows you intimately. He knows the sin that you struggle with. He knows that you were going to be here today. And he knows where you're going to go in the future. And he knows what you need, what you really need. You might think you know what you need, but God knows what you truly need. And remember, this is the same God that we see in Scripture led his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. In Scripture, he protects David, and spoiler alert, he ultimately returns him to his throne. This is the same God that came to earth and bore your sins, that bore my sins when we broke covenant with him. If you are his child, if you are a Christian, why would he not take care of you? Like I said, sounds good in theory. What is, how do we put this into practice, though? And I think that David shows us in Psalm 3. The whole thing is this prayer. And I think that's what we need to do, is pray, is actually come before the Lord. Remember, David, he was kicked off his throne, and what does he do? He prays. He's kicked into the wilderness, and all of Israel turns against him. And what does he do? He prays. All of Israel is slandering him, and they've lost faith that even God can save him. And what does he do? He prays. He doesn't start by planning his political or military comeback. No, he goes to the Lord first and tells him what has happened to him. And we should do that too. The physical act of talking out your problem can often put things in perspective. It can give you clarity. It can also give you emotional healing as you work through your negative emotions, and allow yourself to feel them. And that's good, but more than just mere catharsis, God also tells us that when we pray, we can come boldly to him so that we can receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So Christians, prayer, it hits on physically how we actually talk through problems. It gives us space to work through our grief and our anxiousness, but it also is something that God has ordained to us to receive grace and mercy from him in our time of need. And Christians, God will provide rest for your soul when you pray for him, when you call on him, just like he did for David. Now we'll look at verses 7 and 8, and we're going to see how God doesn't just hear and answer us, he doesn't just sustain us, but he also ultimately saves us. Now, in verse 7, David is addressing God directly. And you'll notice, maybe, this is the first time that he asks God to do something for him. Up until now, he's been merely telling God and showing through his life that he does believe that God will take care of him. But now he's coming to the Lord and asking him to do something. He asks him to arise and save him. 
And this verse mirrors verse 1, the, the language. Uh, it's, uh, the first, verse 1 says his enemies are rising against him, and now David is asking God to arise and save him. And so what, what it's showing is that what David's enemies have done against David, it's not David that's going to counter them. It's God who will counter their works and reverse them. And David tells us exactly what God is going to do to his enemies. He uses these metaphors, uh, striking someone on the cheek or breaking their teeth. And the original audience would have understood this very clearly. Striking the cheek indicated contempt for someone. And I think it still probably carries similar connotations today. And breaking the teeth indicates that you are rendering someone powerless or defenseless. I mean, in an age before orthodontia and dentistry, losing your teeth was going to set you back quite a bit. So David is asking God to bring dishonor and destruction to his enemies. And David concludes this psalm in verse 8 by ascribing salvation to God and to God alone. David is saying he doesn't depend on his own cunning or the might of his followers. No, he's ascribing all might, all cunning, all strength to God. God is the only one who can bring salvation. And again, there's a contrast here with David's enemies back in verse 2. They're saying even God can't save David. But David is saying, no, only God can save me. And no matter what befalls God's people, only God will ultimately bring them salvation and he will bring blessing to them. I was trying to think of an illustration for this part of the sermon, and I thought, okay, the salvation motif. Um, it'd be cool to find a character who really messes up and attempts to fix everything to redeem themselves. And you can contrast that with what they're doing to save themselves and what God ultimately does to save us. What I found was that there's a ton of characters in television and fiction who do this. It's almost like it's written into who we are to seek out redemption. It's almost like we're made in a certain way or in a certain image to reflect a greater story, one that speaks of ultimate redemption, ultimate salvation. We all want to be saved. We all want to be saved from our mistakes and our shortcomings. We all try to save ourselves or find someone else who can save us, whether that's a family member or a political figure. And why else would we find this theme so prevalent in fiction? It's integral to who we are as humans to want redemption. Why else would we root for our favorite characters to atone for their past? And it's because we want to believe that we can save ourselves. And I have good news for you today. You can be saved. You can be saved from your sin and your mistakes. You can be saved from yourself and from your trauma. But the thing is, nothing you can do can save you. Psalm 3 shows how we can be redeemed, how we can be saved. David came alone to God. He came surrounded by enemies. He came suffering from his own sin, the, the, the mistakes he had made. And God heard him and answered him and affirmed that he wanted David. Even in the state that David came in, he wanted David, and he wanted to protect him and restore him to glory. And so David, in turn, trusted what God had answered him with, and he believed that God would take care of him. And so he lived by faith in God's sustaining power. 
And just like he said, God protected and rescued David. And that's the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus gives us. That we come to God like we are, surrounded by enemies and sinful. And despite our sin and our helplessness, God condescends to us and saves us and says, I love you and I want you as my child. And we need to hear this today, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you've grown up in the church or this is your first time in a church building, we need to hear this today. Because like your favorite fictional character, there is someone who needs a redemption arc. That's us. That's humanity. Let me tell you a quick story with a redemption arc. Humanity was invited into relationship with their creator. And then we threw that aside for lesser things. We decided we wanted to make ourselves rulers over creation. Yet, our creator pursued us. And he worked to bring us back into relationship with him. He gave us the law, the Ten Commandments, so that we could know what it is like to be like God. We could know how to treat others like God would treat them. And when humanity continued to turn from him, he came into the world to live as one of us with the same problems and hardships. And he died on our behalf, and he took our sin upon him, and ultimately through his own power, he defeated death. And he defeated our worst enemy, sin. He answered our doubt by giving us his words so that we might know him and know how we can be saved from destruction. And he still offers that salvation freely to all who would claim it. I need it. You need it. Christian, you need it. Even though you may have accepted the offer of salvation, you still need to tell yourself the gospel every day. Preach it to yourself because so often we act contrary to the gospel. And so often we fail to believe that God truly does love us, truly does want us. We continue to wallow in our sin and our guilt and our shame instead of claiming the status that we have as child of our Father. And non-Christians, you need to hear this too because there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself from the cycles of sin and destruction that everyone is part of. The only one who can save you is your heavenly Father, and he longs to save you. Just as David came to God claiming his salvation, so you should come and claim his salvation as well. God will answer you when you call on him. He will sustain you through whatever situation you find yourself in, and he will save you from all your enemies, whether those are earthly enemies or internal struggles or the ultimate enemy, sin. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, we can trust him to deliver us from all our enemies. Let's pray.